Dr. Rick Wallace dropping in on you. I hope that you guys are having an unbelievable week. I hope that you're getting today off to a great start. Uh, I am uh, preparing for a much anticipated birthday weekend. Uh, I'll be finding out what 53 looks like on Saturday. I'm looking forward to spending that time with my wife. We're going to try to sneak off a little bit. To spend some time together when you got as many kids as we have and grandkids and everybody uses your home as ground zero you don't get a lot of time to yourself so we're gonna sneak off and spend some time so I'm excited about uh, that <clears throat> before I get into today's topic which was an arm an impromptu uh, compulsion based off of a conversation I had with a client that reminded me of a conversation I had eight years ago and I decided to kind of touch on it because I think it's an it's something worth examining at the very least but before I do I want to remind you that book number 21 I am uh, the power of self-declaration which examines the two most powerful words in the English le lexicon I am uh, because what follows those two words will set the course of your life when you speak I am the words that follow will set the course of your life. This is book number 21. It's also the second book in a six book series on personal development. The first book is uh, Critical Mass. Um, and if you haven't gotten Critical Mass, get that as well, but you should also get book number uh, 21, but also the second book in the personal development series. Uh, now, I'm going to tell you that I am going to speak from a reference of Christianity and using biblical references. Uh, for those of you who can't get past that for whatever reason, this is probably not going to be uh, the video for you to sink into. However, regardless of your faith, you can learn something from what I'm about to share with you because it transcends any particular religion, but I'm going to use the references because the vast majority of the people that I'm going to be addressing are uh, professed Christians. So I want to take it from that perspective. Um, talked to a client this morning without give, giving too much information, and they had a situation in which they were trying to uh, invest themselves uh, in creating some change. Um, and they were not getting the results they wanted because they were trying to invest in helping someone else change their situation and they were frustrated and it reminded me of a conversation i got from one of my clients who happened to be a pastor of a pretty large church um, back in 2012 may of 2012 i got a phone call and it was an unbelievable uh, encounter because of the depth and the force of the implications of this phone call the person in question simply said bruh if you can't give me the answer to the question that I'm about to pose to you I'm walking away from it all I can't take it anymore uh, again this is a prominent pastor uh, obviously not going to mention his name but he said and I said okay I'll do the best I can what's going on and the question was 
How is it that my people, specifically speaking of black Christians, uh, hey, good morning, uh, Kim, good morning, A.D. Morton. Uh, how, how is it that my people in this instance, specifically black Christians, are the most prayed up, the most church, the most spiritual minded people on the planet, and yet we consistently find ourselves in last place? And what I'm going to share with you right now is in 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 principle uh the same conversation i had with him and the same conversation i had with my client this morning um and it is important that we get this because your faith is what drives your belief system and your belief system is what drives your behavior and your behavior is what sets your habits and your habits are what determine the course of your life. So you have to have a clear understanding of how your faith operates so that your faith doesn't disappoint you. When I talk about faith, I'm not just talking about what you believe. I'm talking about the entire system that encapsulates it. So there's this idea, uh, my client brought it up to me, uh, there's this idea that is heavily prevalent, especially within the black church, and that is Jesus will fix it. And whenever there's a problem that requires work, the response predominantly is Jesus will fix it. Uh, and it's consistent in that, that we consistently turn to Jesus to fix our current situations without understanding the dynamic and the role of Jesus in our relationship with God as a whole. And so we tend to have expectations of Jesus that do not fit the role of Jesus. And it leaves us with a lack of accountability for what we should be doing. So I'm going to demonstrate this as lucidly and succinctly as I possibly can so that it doesn't become overly convoluted. I'm going to try my best to stay away from technical terms within theology, and I'm going to try to just simply present it to you. Okay, a long time ago, biblically speaking, a long time ago, a specific person, Adam, violated a covenant with God. You're going to find out through the Bible that God operates always through covenant with his people. One of the greatest points of wrath that you can get from God is the failure to honor covenant. And he shows that when he sends Malachi to talk to the priests, that's what the entire book of Malachi is about is God sent the prophet to talk to the priests. So this is the priest talking to the preachers, so to speak if you put it in modern day terminology. So uh, the prophet talking to the priest or the top prophet talking to the preacher. And he says in chapter two that you, you lament and you shed tears over my altar and yet you wonder why I do not respond. It's because I have observed your treachery and your deceit in the evil treatings of your wives which are your wives, not only by youth, but, but well, what? By covenant. So you have violated the covenant with your wives and I will not hear your prayers. 
That's the power of covenant. And over and over again, when, when, when Abraham asked God, how do I know? Even though Abraham believed God, it said Abraham believed God and God accounted it for righteousness. Abraham in chapter 15 is talking to God. And he says, okay, but how do I know it? And God did what? Cut a covenant. So we understand. Matter of fact, you got the old covenant with the people in the new covenant. That's the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's covenantal. Everything is covenantal. That's why God holds the marriage in such high regard. So, okay, we're moving through all of that, right? So here's the thing. Adam violated the covenant because the covenant was given to Adam before Eve was even created. It was Adam that was held accountable for honoring the covenant. That's why it was Adam who ultimately created the fall. Now, here's the thing, because theoretically speaking and biblically speaking, all mankind were, were seminally present in Adam, meaning that they extend from Adam's loins. They are a progeny of Adam. They all inherited the, the sin nature. They all inherited the consequences of Adam's actions. And that was spiritual separation from God, spiritual death. Also, it also implemented, instituted physical death, but physical death isn't the thing we fear. It's spiritual death, right? Okay, so now Adam, in a sense, is a type. I don't want to get too, too uh, uh, technical here, but Adam is a type. In Adam's type, through all through Adam, all men were condemned. Through Christ, the fulfillment of all types, including the scapegoat and everything else that is a part of uh, what we know in the Torah, uh, which are the first five books of the Bible written by Moses, we understand that Christ is the, the, everything in the temple, everything built in the temple, everything in the scapegoat, all of the Levitical practices surrounding sin involves the typology of the coming Messiah. So we understand that. So Christ is what? Christ is the fulfillment of the law, but Christ is also the type through which man is reconciled with God. That was Christ's work. What am I getting at? We have this mindset that Christ, you know, Jesus will fix it. Well, the truth is Jesus already fixed it. See, we've got to understand the dynamic of faith. See, James, the brother of Jesus, told us, you can have all the faith you want, but faith without works is absolutely useless. Faith without works is dead. So what am I getting at? Jesus did the work on the cross. After Jesus did the work on the cross, we understand uh, and I'm paraphrasing, we understand that Jesus took back the keys of the kingdom. It didn't end that Jesus gave the keys to the kingdom to those who would believe. So that means that every person who believes has a key, has the key to the kingdom. And what does that come with? That comes with the responsibility of carrying out the responsibility of kingdom work. And a part of kingdom work is standing up against opposition, standing up against differences. It's a representation of what you believe. How well are you representing God if every time someone sees you, you're getting your butt kicked by the circumstances and situations of life? 
And when I say get your butt kicked, it doesn't mean that your faith will allow you to circumvent the vicissitudes of life. Doesn't mean that your faith will allow you to circumvent struggle, heartache, disappointment. What it means is that when you face it, you don't become shaken. When you face it, you don't become frenetic and unglued. When you face it, you don't become coward and cowardice and you don't shrink back into a corner searching for comfort. You understand that by the very nature of your claim of being a follower of Christ, you carry the keys to the kingdom and Jesus fixed it on the cross. Now it's your turn to execute the responsibilities that come with receiving the gift. It is, you cannot sit back and think every time something happens, I'm going to tell Jesus, Jesus is going to fix it. No, Jesus already fixed it. That's one of the biggest problems we have is we're sitting around waiting on uh, God to do something he created us to do. I have said this many times before. You cannot pray to God and expect God to deliver you from the giants he sent you to slay. That does, that's not how it works. So you were sent here to do exceptional and extraordinary thing, to overcome unbelievable obstacles and peril and things that were designed for your detriment to shine and rise above all that should cause you harm and destroy you so that you become a living testimony of the power of that which created you. Becoming a Christian isn't about telling Jesus all about your troubles. That's not even biblical. That's a religious thing that has been taught to us that removes the accountability of taking action. Let me take you back. Now, uh, the idea that faith without works is dead is both explicitly presented and consistently implied throughout the Bible. It is a unavoidable truth if you're going to sit up and you're going to live a life in which you produce. And here it is. It tells you, James chapter 2, verse 14, faith without works is dead. You understand that. But let's go back to the book of Numbers, one of my favorite books, because it, it brought some things to me when I was studying it years and years and years ago uh, that, that really just shook my world and gave me a different viewpoint of God in totality. Outside of the confines of man-made religion, but just simply how God views us and what God expects. Okay, now we have in numbers the Israelites led by Moses, and they have come into the wilderness, and they're sitting at the banks of the Jordan. On the other side of the Jordan is Canaan, and in Canaan is the promised land that God promised Abraham, well, initially Abram. And then Abraham, changed his name to Abraham, promised him his descendants would inherit. Okay, so they're there. But then God tells Moses something that most of us don't get. Their name is on the deed already. It's been on the deed for centuries. But now they must go in and possess it. They must go in and literally take hold of it. Their, their belief in me has brought them to this point to where now they've got to go in and execute their right to have it. That means they've got to go in and evict those people who are on the land that I gave them and put their name on the deed. So Moses says, okay, the first thing we need to do is scout. So we're going to, tend, we're going to send 12 spies. Now the 12 spies go over 
uh, two of which are Joshua and Caleb. The other 10 don't matter because they didn't get it right. So they come back, all 10, I mean all 12, acknowledge. It's everything God said it was. It's unbelievable. Flowing with milk and honey, the whole nine, all the stuff you ever read about it is that, it's that, that, that. Okay, that's, that's, that, that's what's going on. They also acknowledge, all 12, that it's filled with giants. All 12 say that. Now, this is where the opinions start to differ, though. 10 say, we can't possess it. We're like grasshoppers in the sight of these giants. There's no way we can go in. Joshua and Caleb said, if God said it, that's all I need to know. We can go in. We can take it. It's ours. The people decided to listen to the 10. This is where it gets interesting. This is where you have to really, truly pay attention because the doctrine of applied faith is presented here just as much as it is in James chapter two. Now, guess what happens? After they sit up and say, we can't do it, God goes to Moses and say, hey, check this out. Let them know that I have heard, he came and he said, I have heard the complaints and the grumblings of Israel toward me. So then I had to go back when I heard that, wait a minute, I didn't see them complaining against God. So I went back and I had to read. I couldn't find where they were personally naming God as a problem and they were complaining against God. So I said, okay, what's going on? God took their lack of faith in action as a direct complaint against his power. God said, I've given you the power. I have, I have done this, 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 and this for you. By now you should know what I'm capable of. And I'm telling you now to go in and take the next step. And you're saying you can't. When you say you can't, you're saying I can't. That's a direct complaint against me. I had to, I spent a couple of years just delving into this idea that when I say I can't, I am literally convicting God of being a liar because he already told me I could. And how is God taking that conviction? Well, let me show you how God took it. God says, you go tell them this. As they have spoken in my hearing, so shall I do to them. It doesn't matter whether they speak good. It doesn't matter whether they speak evil. What they speak in my hearing or other words, what they expect is what I'll give them. God meets you at the level of your expectations. Now, what I want to dare you to do is find anywhere in the Bible from Samson to, 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 to Solomon to David to Jesus. I want you to find somewhere. Joshua, find somebody in the Bible that achieved what they achieved without taking action. Find somewhere in the Bible where all they did was sit back and let Jesus fix it. Jesus fixed it for the Christian on Calvary, when he mended the separation of God and man, where he opened up the full power and capacity of God and connected man so that would be an indwelling of the omnipotent power of God in every believer. So how does it feel to have unlimited power, omnipotence, 
residing and coursing through your veins and you're whining and complaining and waiting on Jesus to fix what you were put here to do. What you need is in the inside of you. It, it's a part of your structural DNA. It's a part of your spiritual DNA. It's a part of your mental makeup. You have got to embrace the idea that this life isn't about ease. It's not about comfort. It's not about meandering through the maze of mediocrity. It's about standing up to the challenges. Go back to to, 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 to uh, David. David was out keeping the sheep. But when you study things um, and you start to really truly understand how important it is to be able to break down things in the original language. Uh, a practice in theology known as exegesis. To be able to exegete scripture is extremely important because when you look at it, it says he kept the sheep. It says he kept on keeping the sheep. It was a part of his mental makeup so that when Samuel showed up at Jesse's house to find and anoint the new king, David wasn't there. He was keeping the sheep, putting in the work, being accountable, living the experience, not seeking the comfort of the house. It's important that you understand this. Why? Because so many want the comfort and the promise, and it doesn't, it comes by process. David was out enduring the process so that when it was time to receive the promise, he was prepared. So you got to be prepared for the promise. I'm almost done. Just check me out for a minute. After David is finally identified, because he's not even in the house, uh, Samuel is going through Eliab and everybody else, and he gets there and he says, that's everybody. He said, no, I got the youngest boy. He out there keeping the sheep. I'm pretty sure that ain't who you're looking for. He ain't but a kid. Said, no, I need you to bring him in. And when he brought him in, God said, that's the one. So they, they anointed him. But guess what happened after David is anointed the next king of Israel? What does David do? David goes back out and continues to keep the sheep. And then in, the, in a later time, David is sent out by Jesse to go check on Eliab and his other brothers as they are standing in a face-off against the Philistines. And the Philistines has this great warrior that is striking fear in the heart of the Israelites named Goliath. Well, in ancient times, when, when they went to war, one of the ways that kings would settle disputes to save uh, massive loss is they your best man against my best man. Whoever wins, that king will turn over the throne or become a vassal a vassal, which means basically I'm just here, and I'm, but I'm doing the bidding of someone else, become a vassal king for the king whose man won. And Goliath's out there yelling and hurling insults, talking mad noise, right? 
David walks up and goes, what the heck is this? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that's sitting up here hurling insults at the army of the living God? So he identifies not with the army itself, but that the fact the army belongs to the living God, the very God that anointed him, the very God that had allowed him to defend the sheeps, defend the sheeps against lions and bears with his bare hands, right? So he comes up and says, hey, what will the king give to the man who defeats this, this, this uncircumcised Philistine? So they go run and tell uh, Saul. Now, now Saul has already stepped out of line. So he's in a place where he ain't seeing things spiritually. No way. He's seeing it like most people see it. He's looking at it from a practical sense. He's forgetting the power of God residing in him. He's forgetting the unbelievable force that he has. So he's sitting up and he's looking at David walks in. He says, hey, man, this guy. You're a youth and this guy has been a warrior since his youth. You're a little kid. He's a beast. What did he and David starts to tell him, you don't understand. I've been through the process. Where others bowed out, I stayed in the process. I allowed the process to shape me. And in the midst of the process, I've killed both lion and bear that came to take away the sheep. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be just like one of them. It was in the need. Now, he didn't say, I'm going to call down God and God's going to do it for me. He didn't say God's going to fix it. What he said was, I am going to go out and I'm going to personally take care of this for you because God has prepared me. Well, now here we are in a new dispensation and time in which Christ has been on the scene. Christ performed the ultimate at the cross. That's where he fixed it at. He's not meant to come into every situation you face and fix it for you. That's what you're going to do. You have a direct link. You have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit inside of you, meaning you have God and the mind of God, which surpasses all understanding and knows all things inside of you. There's no answer to any dilemma that you're facing, no answer to any enigmatic issue you're encountering that you don't have the power to overcome, but you're not going to be able to throw a little uh, uh, religious uh, uh, epitaph or anything out there. Uh, Jesus, no, that's not how it works. Jesus already fixed it. Your turn. Jesus already fixed it. It's your turn. Do you get what I'm saying? You're not going to be able to pass the buck to Jesus and expect things to happen. That's why we're in last place. That's why we're so downtrodden. That's why we seem incompetent and impotent is because we're waiting for Jesus to do what we were designed to do. You can't claim faith and not live it. James told you that. Your faith will be revealed by the actions you take. Your faith will be revealed by how you engage the challenges and the vicissitudes of life that are inevitably coming into your paradise. You're not going to overcome by simply saying Jesus will fix it. Jesus fixed it and ascended, leaving us to finish it.
You're gonna, it's going to take some courage to cross the Jordan. It's going to take some courage to take on those giants. It's going to take some courage to break free of the trauma that you've endured, that's been passed down from generation to generation. It's going to take some consistency and persistence to push through all of the difficulty and the frustration and the hurt and the pain. I don't tell people what faith to claim. I let the life that I live speak for me. And I challenge people to develop a one-on-one -on -one relationship with the creator. That's something religious can't, religion can't buy you. One-on-one -on -one relationship to a level that you trust God. See, a lot of us have religiously learned what to say. A lot of us have learned religiously how to behave. But what I found out is that the vast majority of us simply learn religiously how to pretend. Because see, being a true follower of God isn't pretty. Being a true follower of God isn't easy. But everybody's expecting ease. And nobody's willing to endure the process. Everybody wants the promise. But nobody wants to endure the process. There can never be a promise without there first being a process. Process always precedes promise. I hope that you got something out of it. I hope that you were able to reach inside and pull something out of what I shared with you. We lose sight of the dynamic of this spiritual reality in which we live. We consistently misunderstand the role of the Christ in the grand scheme of our existence and we take the cheap in 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 way out by dumping it back on the back of the christ instead of bearing our part of the burden i'm challenging you right now to raise your standard of expectation and raise your commitment to fully engage everything that there is to be done that you were designed specifically to do. On that note, I'm going to check out of here. You guys have an unbelievable day. As I always say, I'm going to live my life on full, and I challenge you to do the same. When you do that, you can be sure that you will leave this world having died on E, leaving nothing undone. On that note, I'm out. You guys have a great day.